This week, we went deep into e-commerce. E-commerce has been all the rage throughout COVID, and it makes sense why. We're all at home now, and brands are able to get to us in more and more ways. A company that I've been keeping an eye on in the e-commerce space is Italic, a marketplace for luxury goods. And in this episode, I chatted with Italic's founder and CEO, Jeremy Kai. Luxury goods are interesting. They're desired, but super expensive. What I didn't know originally, though, was how much of that money is kept by the brand versus the actual manufacturer. Italic has flipped the model and unlocked manufacturers' ability to sell directly to consumers. So now you can buy products from the factories that make Prada, Gucci, Tumi, etc., but at factory price. A win for the manufacturer and a win for the consumer. Jeremy walked me through the way he thinks about e-commerce, what the U.S. can learn from China, where the value is trapped in this space, and how to build a world-class consumer experience. Welcome, Jeremy, and thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Happy to be here. Yeah, Jeremy, pumped to have you on the show today. We're going to dive, you know, really deeply on e-commerce and, and what you're up to at Italic. But before we jump in, you know, just give folks listening a bit more about your background. Sure. So I have your very classic tech background, um, almost down to an, a stereotype. So I grew up in Chicago. I went to school out east at a small school called Babson, dropped out and uh, moved to San Francisco um, to start my, my first company after getting this thing called the Teal Fellowship which basically gives kids, you know, money to stay out of college. Um, and that company was called Fountain. Um, it was an enterprise HR software company. Um, we scaled it, um, you know, pretty sizably and I think into the millions of uh, applicants a, a month in terms of processing volume. And, uh, and yeah, I think um, the reality for me is most kids do not drop out of college to, uh, to work on enterprise software or are excited about that. So I think I, you know, uh, towards the end of my, my kind of four to five year journey there, um, I started thinking about other ideas. Um, and my family actually comes from a, manu- a manufacturing background. So I think growing up, we've always spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, the, the opportunities in the business, um, you know, the, the ecosystem at large. And, uh, and yeah, I think that gave the context to, um, to, to start Italic. So let's, let's, let's jump on that and kind of your manufacturing background, your family's manufacturing background and and set the stage for folks, you know, on what's going on in e-commerce, you know, COVID hits, we've all seen that kind of famed graphic now, you know, e-commerce is insane growth to follow. I think it was something to the tune of, you know, eight weeks of growth matching the prior eight years of growth. Um, Shopify facilitated, you know, two and a half billion dollars of e-commerce sales on Black Friday. So, you know, e-commerce is clearly ripping right now. There's a lot of activity kind of going on. Before we jump in kind of to the business specifically, just just give a perspective from, you know, from your side on, on what's going on at a macro level in e-commerce, you know, in 2020 right now. Yeah, you know, I, I, I could talk about this all day, but I, I think I'll try to limit it to a couple of things. You know, I, I think um, uh, this this is an interesting topic because I, I actually spent a lot of my time, um, you know, growing up in, in China and uh, that's where my parents kind of immigrated from. And, uh, and especially in the manufacturing world, I think like that ecosystem has, has actually changed um, dramatically in the domestic market, but not so much in the global market. Um, and I think the, the interesting thing that I, I, I've seen, as well as for starting Italic, I spent maybe the, uh, the first year living in, in, um, in, in China with our China team. Um, is that I actually think the the, the U.S. market um, today, since maybe like 2017 onwards, uh, resembles a lot of what I think happened between t- 2005 and 20, maybe 20, 2015 in the China market, where you know you had these extremely you know powerful um, incumbents um, in the form of like an Alibaba with ta- you know Taobao and Tmall and JD uh, you know arise, 
um, uh, becoming kind of the default, um, you know, uh, uh, places where people shop. And of course, like the comparison people always make is to, to Amazon today. But I think the, um, the interesting thing I, 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 I see at least is that um, the, the, the third party sales um, on, uh, on those platforms is actually are, are, are substantially, I think, more entrenched in China than they actually are in Amazon. Um, meaning, you know, if you are a brand today, the only way to get to distribution um, to a mass market is not to go first party and build your own website, meaning there is no Shopify for, for China because there's actually no need for it. Um, uh, um, uh, and, and, uh, and everyone would actually sell through those, those distribution channels um, because they actually built really strong native you know, experiences for, for the brands to, to build um, kind of their own websites you know, natively on those, uh, those platforms. So I think that's, that's something that was interesting um, uh, that I think has, has started to kind of cross over a little bit onto uh, the US side. I think a lot of the things that have happened from maybe 2015 onwards in China as, as well in terms of you know, platform popularity um, from things like um, Xiaohongshu, which is you know, a really popular uh, live shopping site um, that that's starting to come over as well. Um, I think like the, the biggest thing that I'm personally excited about is the um, empowering of the manufacturers to actually become self-serve merchants. You know, historically, if you look back decades, the, the way that the traditional retail supply chain has um, evolved is, is basically, you know, a brand will develop a product, they will, per, you know, they'll purchase that inventory from the manufacturer, um, and then they'll sell it for a five to 10x you know, markup, whether that's um, sold through retail and offline distribution in which the retailer might take 30 to 60% of, you know, the, the margin themselves by taking the ownership of the inventory um, or uh, by the brand nowadays being able to go direct to consumer, um, uh, whether through their own, you know, first party retail uh, kind of uh, storefronts of their own or through, um, you know, online sales nowadays. I think the uh, the interesting thing that, that I've seen at least happen in, in China over the past five years is the, uh, I guess the concept of like C2M, which is a, I think an American term nowadays, um, of basically customers being able to shop straight from the manufacturer. Um, and I think because of the logistics um, uh, in the domestic market in China being extremely uh, cost efficient um, and, uh, and, and fast, um, th there's no like, you know, there's, there's standardized um, shipping methods like SF Express, you know, comparable to a FedEx or EPS here, but because there's so much competition and, and there's no like standardized um, kind of uh, single player um, uh, postal service, um, you know, the rates have become extremely competitive. Um, and also with e-com actually being significantly more um, uh, uh, widespread and actually having a higher uh, penetration with a, a larger population, um, I think the, the, um, uh, it actually gave rise to uh, the ability for manufacturers to become merchants of their own and actually you know, create brands, whether natively on those platforms um, or the rise of like unbranded platforms like you know, the well-quoted Pingodua nowadays. So, um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of comparable you know, things that are starting to happen in the US um, and Western markets. The, the difficulty I think in this case is most of the world's production is still you know, housed in Asia predominantly and, and the logistics is really the hard part about getting the products from you know manufacturers hands into a consumer um so yeah i i could talk all day about this but i think uh there's a lot of things that i could unpack there but i, I think that's um those are the things that are, are probably um the biggest i think macro trends that we've seen yeah so let's unpack some of those salient trends i think from the perspective of 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 italic itself right so talk about you know how italic fits into that you you alluded to you know some of the key shifts that are going on right on the um 
on, on the e-commerce side. So talk about Italic, you know, describe the business, the state of the company today. Sure. So Italic is a membership that provides access to over a thousand products that we designed and developed ourselves, um, ranging from cookware to bedding to apparel to accessories and footwear and so on. Um, but our spin on it is that um, these are products made by the same manufacturers as top brands, but we're selling them for maybe 50, 60, 70, sometimes even 80% lower prices than uh, even comparable direct-to-consumer brands, and even more so compared to traditional incumbents. Um, underneath the hood, we actually operate more of a marketplace model, and this is our secret sauce of you know, how we're able to develop so many products at once. Um, we actually build technology and tools to empower manufacturers to become merchants. So we provide them with basically uh, the, the toolkit and, a, and, and uh, the, the, uh, the distribution channel to a global market. Um, and we do everything in between. So I call it private label as a service. We do design work, product development, um, uh, all the way to fulfillment, ocean freight and customer support. So they can focus on what they're good at, which is production and QC, um, uh, but in turn, be able to take inventory risk for the first time as a merchant to a global market. Um, and uh, as a result, reap the result, uh, reap the rewards of, of actually owning inventory and earn higher margins of their own. So that's um, that's what Italic is today. And I think it's it's taken a, lo a long, it's not, a, you know, it's not a business where you can simply buy inventory and start selling it online. There's a lot of business development and sourcing work that has to go into to convincing these manufacturers to partner with us. But, um, but yeah, I think we're now kind of finally hitting stride with uh, a lot of those products. And I think on the, the product merchandise side, you know, we're finally able to offer, I think, a cohesive, comprehensive um, uh, offering that covers you from the second you wake up in our bedding to what you wear, to what you use to work, um, uh, uh, all the way to like what you cook with and go to sleep with. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of the goal is to cover, you know, as much of your lifestyle as possible. And, and so juxta unpack that a little bit more in terms of juxtaposing the old model versus the italic model, right? Because that's that's the nuance that I'm sure is lost upon most people, at, at least outside in, right? From my understanding, the italic model effectively cuts out, you know, three, you know, at least two, but prospectively even three layers of middlemen, right? The brand, the wholesaler, if it's applicable, the retailer. Talk a little bit more about the italic model versus the, you know, traditional model in, in retail. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, you know, we... We always compare it to two models, and, and one is the classic like direct-to-consumer model, and one is the traditional retail model. Um, and I think you can, you know, it, it's very easy to actually quantify this. So the the um, in the in the um, uh, the so-called direct-to-consumer model, you know, I think uh, this is you know uh, at least in the West pioneered by companies like Bonobos and, and Warby and Everlane, all of which started between the 2008 and 2012 period. Um, and I think the the initial you know appeal there was you know they, the the claim to cut out the middleman, which is very uh, which is now a very common narrative, right? And and nine times out of ten is not true. Um, uh, you know, was really appealing back then because basically what they were saying to customers was, hey, well, you don't have to buy through a retailer; you can buy direct from us. And in doing so, you know, we're actually passing along savings to you because we're cutting out that retailer. You know, I think that was true for the first couple of years, and I think that was actually a really exciting value proposition that a lot of people. You know, common like middle Americans got really, um, the middle American market got really excited about um, was that concept of value. And, you know, you're getting a high quality product, um, but at a price point, which should be lower than like the big box stores would offer you. Um, I think what that's turned into, however, is that um, these companies are no longer really cutting out the middleman, which historically has been the retailer. Instead, they're using uh, Google and Facebook for customer acquisition, which every, you know, everyone in e-com uses anyways. Um, but, but because of that, they have to pad the prices basically comparable to what the legacy brands have done anyways. So instead of paying 30 to 50 
100% to a, to a target or Nordstrom's um, in, in, in terms of giving up your margin by having them do your customer acquisition. Instead, you're taking that in-house and, um, and actually having to kind of acquire customers directly. And as a result, um, you know, there's always the concept of like margin compression happening, right? So um, your incentive as a brand and anyone who, who takes inventory risk in general is lower costs. So negotiate with your manufacturers where you can get maybe 20 to 50% optimization, um, but then also increase your price point so that you can actually, you know, forward your, your, um, your customer acquisition while still taking a profit for yourself. So really, I think the, um, you know, on, on the direct to consumer model, the way it works is like, let's say it's a $16 shirt in, in reality. Uh, manufacturers, uh, typically, whether you're in Italy or in China, like doesn't matter, generally will take a 15 to 25% margin on top of cost of goods uh, and labor. So generally, like that $16 shirt, you might actually see uh, manufacturers sell for $20. Let's say a company like, you know, Bonobos or Everlane buys that for $20. Typically, you know, historically, the, the direct-to-consumer model would have tried to, you know, lower the markup. So maybe try to do it at 2 to 3 to 4x. Um, but nowadays, I think like everyone, you know, whether you're a direct to consumer brand or a traditional brand will typically buy that for 20 and sell it for 100 or more um, between five to 10x markups conservatively. Um, so to a customer, really, it's like whether you buy from, you know, a direct to consumer brand or a traditional incumbent, which I'll get into in a second, you're buying the same product at a, at a similar price point, um, regardless of what actually it costs. Um, and then to a manufacturer, you know, you're making like four to five dollars on a hundred dollar transaction. So I think... Um, you know, that's really like the, the model that I think like has evolved to today. You know, what I'm, I'll kind of briefly mention the second one, which is, which is the traditional incumbent kind of retail model, which is what most brands and retailers have done for the, maybe the past 30 to 50 years since like the, the Walmarts of the world have, have really, I think, institutionalized this where, you know, um, uh, brands will, um, uh, will produce product, they'll sell it to whether a wholesaler or a distributor or direct to the retailer. Um, uh, typically they'll, uh, try the, the, the general principles like 50%. So, you know, let's say it's a, uh, a, a $20 shirt, um, you know, the same one with the $16 cogs and the $4, um, uh, profit margin, um, that, uh, that brand will, uh, let's say the MSRP of the, of the price is still hundred dollars. That brand might sell it for $50 to a Walmart or, or, uh, let's say Nordstrom's and Nordstrom's will buy that for $50. Um, and then sell it to a customer for, for 100. Um, and it's on the retailer to, to actually do the customer acquisition. So um, so that's kind of the, the model that I think like we're kind of entering into. The way Italic is different is um, uh, because we're actually partnering with the manufacturer, our incentives are actually um, not to lower price point or uh, of, of the cost or to increase the price point to the customer, but instead it's actually just to drive volume uh, to the manufacturer so that they're able to succeed. And typically that means, you know, lower prices um, will drive higher volumes, uh, obviously, but then also on the flip side, you know, for the manufacturer, um, even if we double or triple the profit margins, which is maybe, um, you know, let's say that $16 shirt, um, uh, let's, tr let's try to sell that for $30 right, which um, would effectively change their profit margin from $4 to 14, um, you know, that's still a substantial discount on the, um, uh, that's a 70% discount on, on the, you know, the classic, I guess, uh, uh, retail, as well as the direct to consumer model, even if they try to price it at a, you know, 4X markup to like $80. So, um, so really, I think for, for Italic, the customer is, um, uh, the incentives, really, it's like an incentive game of like, how do we, um, 
uh, empower the manufacturer to kind of take on inventory, and that's by increasing their profit margins um, by almost double or triple each time. And then to a customer, you know, how do we attract them? And it, and really the answer is just like our price points are better than anyone else because we're not actually taking up, you know, a, a margin that way. And instead, we're actually monetizing through the membership fee. So um, so that's how how um, kind of Italic is is, is uh, I, I think different um, from a business model lens um, than the rest of the ecosystem. Yeah, two questions I want to unpack there, one of which is, you know, I want you to talk a little bit more about the membership fee, right? Because obviously that that adds in more of a kind of like SaaS-like component to the business model as opposed to, you know, classical or prototypical e-commerce or D2C. So that's that's one aspect I want you to unpack a little bit. But the other, the other and more deeper question I have is, and this is probably the pan-obvious question is, you know, the supply chain hasn't necessarily changed, right, over the last 20, 30 years. There have been shifts, right, in e-commerce, some of the trends you right. talked about in China, overseas, et cetera. Why, why has this not been done before? Or why are, probably more importantly or interestingly, why are other companies, you know, like Italic, right? Why are other companies not doing this? Which is basically, it makes sure. a ton of sense, right, to empower the manufacturer. And then obviously on the consumer side, if you're getting, you know, set quality of goods, right, and you can get it 30% cheaper, 50% cheaper. Um, and, and one of the things I loved, by the way, just as a, as a tangent, you know, I was spending time on the site in prep for our conversation. And I love that every product you look at, it literally, there's two immediate points that come, you know, that are quickly visible, which is A, who is the, you know, who is the manufacturer for the comparable brand making this product? And if I bought it from, you know, that brand, how much more money would I be paying, right? So it's like a consumer yeah. stream, right? Super slick, easy to understand, easy to look at, and like very, like very comfortably navigate. That you know, I I don't really have to even trust the quote unquote italic brand because I'm getting a sense of who the manufacturer is. So by proxy, if I trust that other luxury brand, I should be trusting you know this brand, and and you know a very clean distillation of of what the price point is. So I guess two two questions, right? Unpack that membership fee part of it. Uh, I think that's a unique take on the business model, and then the other part is. You know, just what's what's going on in this landscape? Why are other people not rushing to empower manufacturers and and reduce prices for customers? Yeah, the um, the, the membership fee is is actually uh, you know it it it, it uh, if I have to be totally transparent, the, the membership fee kind of came as a result of I think the um, re- the the reckoning in, in the direct to consumer landscape for venture businesses in the past year, um, and uh, and I think for us, you know, we were. Um, uh, we were classically compared to the, really the first two years of business, like we had a chicken and egg problem. We had, um, we had manufacturers who we wanted to convince uh, to produce products for us, but in order to convince them, we had to get customers. But to get customers, we have to get products that, you know, hopefully it, it appeals to them. So we really actually ran the first two years as a, as a brand model. So we actually marked up our products, you know, less than what brands typically do, we typically aim for maybe like a two to 2.5 X, you know, markup. So it's still substantially cheaper, but, but really the, the goal was like, how do we acquire suppliers to, to this model? Um, and then I think the, the, what happened in, in 2019 was, um, you know, a lot of these early direct to consumer brands either went public or had acquisitions that didn't really, I think, pan out for investors. Um, and I think for us, like we were considered still at the time as a brand. So how do we differentiate, you know, the, the company um, from an optical lens of like, um, you know, Italic is not your standard brand, but to an average customer investor, you know, who's looking like they don't know what happens under, underneath the hood. They don't know that we actually operate a marketplace. So how do we differentiate that? And I think the, the answer for us was always like, you know, uh, the, 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 the main reason why people buy from us is value. 
it's you're getting a high quality product and the price point should be like meaningfully different so that it attracts you to, you know, at least try it out. And once you try it out, you know, we see really high repeat purchase rates across, you know, uh, uh, cross selling into multiple categories or departments. So really the membership fee, I think, wanted to lean in, into that, into our ability to price aggressively. So the, the, the membership fee, um, in terms of how we actually came up with it was we looked at our, our year one um, kind of like cohorts in terms of, you know, what do people typically spend between uh, uh, months 12 to 16, um, which for us typically was between like 225 and 250. And, uh, and what was our kind of contribution margin? What was our take rates? And um, what were we expecting to actually like take from these customers in, in terms of like our actual you know, gross margins um, uh, uh, by year one? We front load that with a membership fee. So the, the membership fee was basically like what we were making um, so that we could actually use that for kind of uh, immediate customer acquisition. But then, um, but then everything else from that to a customer is actually gravy on top. It's like, we're actually not gonna try to monetize you from the second you sign up. Instead, everything else is just like, you know, you could spend $10,000, you could spend $1,000, you could spend $100. Like it actually, you know, it makes a difference to us, but like it doesn't make a huge financial impact. Um, it makes a difference to us because it allows us to place larger, you know, it allows us to kind of um, send more uh, volume to our manufacturers, which is always a good thing for us. So, um, so the membership fee was kind of um, uh, a way to, for us to price much more aggressively um, and offer prices that basically were 30 to 50% to lower than the prices that we were already offering. So it's just sweetening, sweetening the deal to, to a customer. Um, and then I think the second question is really hard. It's like, you know, the supply chain inherently hasn't changed. Why has this not been done? You know, why, why aren't other people doing this? And, and, um, and, and the, if I have to be totally honest, like, it's not that this is rocket science. It's just that it's really, really hard. Um, you know, it's the easy path in, in retail is like, you come up with an idea to sell something online and you do that and you know you buy inventory and you sell it and you take the margin for yourself because really like why wouldn't you you know if you have the opportunity to take you know uh, an 80 percent margin on a product sale like why wouldn't you do that um i think the and that's why for italic like it's it's a much harder business to get off the ground because basically at its core we have to convince you know dozens to hundreds of manufacturers to take tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars sometimes even millions an initial inventory risk, um, uh, which most manufacturers are absolutely not set up to do. Um, manufacturers historically have, um, you know, we talked about the razor thin margins, but even more so, um, they're extremely risk adverse. Um, when they actually receive, you know, typically when you place an order, it's like 30% down and 70%, you know, upon delivery, that's for first orders. Um, that's 70% as a receivable, they're actually go, going to factoring companies immediately and getting like 80 to 90 cents on the dollar on that. So they just need the cash flow like immediately because they're also taking on more clients and they want to take risk on, you know, labor, equipment, materials, and so on in their warehouses. So, um, so I think, you know, Convincing a menu, our first year, like we spoke with over 150 manufacturers, only two to three said yes. Um, I think that's probably the first reason as to why it's not, hasn't been done before is like, it's just a, it's just a fundamentally different financial value proposition to a, to a manufacturer. Um, and also like most American or Western uh, founders are, are not equipped to, you know, be able to uh, convince manufacturers, right? It's like an extreme, like you have to be, um, uh, really like you really have to understand the manufacturing landscape in order to convince a manufacturer to do this. Um, 
versus like, hey, I'm going to come to you and and buy, you know, um, uh, buy my initial inventory, and maybe you'll you'll scalp me on the first order by giving me like a much higher price point, but eventually with economies of scale, I'll get you down. So um, so I think that's probably the first reason. It's just like it's really hard. And then the second one is uh, on the logistics side. Um, it's only become, I think, recently possible for manufacturers to do this. Um, I think most manufacturers, like even to this day, the biggest in the world, you know, are, are 100% offline, um, you know, in the domestic markets in Asia, you know, they might have a very small e-com team or a project manager who might like try to list their products on, on local marketplaces, but really by and large, you know, manufacturers are as a whole, um, you know, basically 100% offline. They don't even have websites. Some of the, like we work with five publicly or six publicly listed manufacturers, and and I think four of them don't have websites. So that kind of gives you a, a sense of like how offline this industry is. Um, I think with the proliferation of um, the local domestic marketplaces, a lot of these manufacturers who historically have kind of shied away from you know an Alibaba or you know like the, the, because of the quality, you know, uh, and, and also Amazon, by the way, because it's extremely like Amazon is everything is commoditized. Like it's hard to differentiate quality from not because everything like if you're not a brand that is that is um, recognized, like everything looks the same. So I think only recently with these, you know, uh, uh, from like 2015 onwards, like a lot of the um, domestic um, kind of marketplaces showed up and they actually focused on quality goods. So I think the manufacturers woke up to that and now they spun up kind of like more dedicated services to, to e-com clients or to, um, to, uh, to, to um, kind of the, their own like private label brands that they would sell uh, directly on these platforms. The last thing I would say is, you know, I think um, there's this notion that like manufacturers are just like kind of, you know, places that you place orders with and they'll produce whatever you want them to. Uh, manufacturers nowadays are, are like really savvy when it comes to R&D. Um, oftentimes in fashion, for example, um, menu, the, the brand side, the buyers on the brands will actually go into showrooms that manufacturers have developed, like, you know, let's say a thousand SKU, like a thousand styles. And the buyers will just look and choose like what they like and then make tweaks on those manufacturers products and call it their own. So a lot of the R&D actually started to kind of shift over from the uh, kind of the, the brand side onto the manufacturers in which the manufacturers are actually like saving time. That's their incentives to, to cut down the time um, uh, to an order. But but to, uh, to, uh, to, to us, it's like, hey, you know, historically we would, have had to, we would have had to make like tech packs and like, you know, go through five, 10 samples. Now we can do it in like one or two or three um, because a lot of times the manufacturers already have the R&D like and design competencies in-house. So, um, and that's only, I think been, um, probably happening in the past like eight to 10 years. Um, so yeah, I think like a combination of those three reasons is probably like why this is probably the only time in retail history where, where this is possible. Um, you know, I, I can't say that this is impossible to copy, but I do think we have a really, you know, kind of deep moat when it comes to team competency and kind of our existing um, track record. I'm surprised to hear that you were saying, you know, out of, uh, out of that initial experience, you know, Call you talked to a hundred odd manufacturers and and two signed up or so again outside in you know not knowing the intricacies and, and the difficulties of the business but outside in the value prop you laid out earlier in the conversation is really clear right Jeremy right I mean on on the manufacturer right. side you're increasing margins quite materially uh, ostensibly you know if you're on this kind of marketplace or so you have additional challenge uh, you have additional channels which at you know at, at worst you know at best drives volume at worst diversifies you know your end customer kind of end customer base. What was the hesitancy or resistance, you know, from early manufacturers in, in signing up on the platform? And I, and I have to assume, especially, again, kind of outside in and seeing the volume and, and levity of SKUs you guys are, 
are coming out with that that manufacturers on the platform has to have gone up you know quite materially uh, and has to be growing quite you know in a, in a kind of compounding manner yeah absolutely i mean the, the 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 easiest way to answer is just you know it's a combination of risk tolerance and available yeah. capital um <clears throat> manufacturers like don't typically sit on mountains of cash it's like it's constantly being redeployed into um into labor into materials which they stock you know so that it's faster production times um, into equipment so that ultimately the cost per unit that they're able to um you know command and and differentiate from competitors which is you know uh, like really it's 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 like manufacturers don't have a lot of cash and then on the flip side um you know the uh the the tolerance for taking on like um a, a new client who's not going to pay you um uh as a it's just like a, a very even though it sounds like very obvious like the, the value proposition and it is um they're still having to take a bet on like these western founders that like don't you know um they, they don't even have a website up yet right so at its core it's like hey you know can like can we even trust these people um uh and i think the the answer there is just like you know uh most most manufacturers i think um uh are 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 like have been burned many times in the past and are, are not trusting of of new clients that's why they require these kind of deposit structures that's why i think like you know it's only until maybe like three four five orders in when they start offering like better payment terms um i think the the the, the other part is just like you know i think for um for a manufacturer to sell to a global market they really have to like trust the um the, that the client like knows what they're doing um oftentimes manufacturers won't even make money on the first order because like it's so small that they'll actually put it you know put production in the sample room um so i think like it, it's it's really just at this at, at its core it's just like those two reasons just like can we you know do we even want to trust taking the risk the risk on these new people um and then two like do we have the capital to invest in this um which oftentimes i don't so i would say it's like it's not for every manufacturer. A lot of them like are are probably will never be suited for this. Um, but on the flip side, the people who are, you know, they've been actually what we found is they've been waiting for a solution like this, but they oftentimes don't want to be the first player. So um, so the first two to three, I really commend on them on being, I think, like really kind of forward thinking and taking a, a chance and and you know, being entrepreneurial. And and I think a big part of it is also like owning your own destiny as a as a as a company, because historically you're reliant on like maybe the two to three kind of bigger clients. Um, the, 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 um, kind of the, once that happens to your point, it really starts compounding, you know, manufacturers all talk to each other, you know, they all know each other. Um, and we also on the sales side, like on the BD side, like we're able to, um, put together documentation and case studies, you know, our just entire cycle just got a lot more efficient in which we can now close like, you know, most manufacturers fairly easily because we can show a robust history of being able to sell through product. So, um, so yeah, I think. I think that's probably the the the, the reason why our, our our close rate has gone up, but um, uh, it, it certainly has not been an easy path to get there. And what's what's your thought process on you know one of the things that um, candidly surprised me and impressed me in, in going through the Italic website was just you know how many SKUs um, are available, right? And so I'm curious how you think about it because obviously you know again outside in from uh, if you think about retail. There's an obvious observation, which is, you know, the more SKUs you have, the more complex the supply chain. What are, you know, distill down, Jeremy, some of the characteristics and kind of the chronology of how you think about inventory management. How do you think about, you know, what's the ordering of which products should be made available on Italic? And, 
you know, either why that makes sense logistically, whether that, why that makes sense, you know, in kind of the customer journey of the demographic you're serving. Talk a little bit more about some of the characteristics of what SKUs make it onto Italic and, and, and the criteria and chronology of how you think about it. Sure, absolutely. So on the first point, I think on what specifically makes it, we have really two lenses at, on, on how we look at this. One is just, um, uh, one is just like a very basic like quantitative and qualitative analysis of like our existing cohorts. And then secondly, it's, is more of a flywheel type of um, kind of thought process of, you know, if we bring this on, does it attract net new audiences that we previously weren't able to? So on the first one, it's, it's really quite straightforward. We, uh, on a qualitative lens, we, um, you know, we look for categories that are logistically straightforward. So small to middle-sized products, nothing too small, nothing too large, nothing perishable, at least for now. Um, uh, and, and, um, on the second one, it's it's just like, you know, the, the maturity of the online market, is this like something that people are consistently buying online or is it like an inherently offline purchase? Um, and then the third one I think is, um, is probably the uh, easiest is, is just like, is this a historically high margin type of business where if we introduce a product that is close to cost, you know, that um, uh, that the, the perceived value of the membership goes up because we can hopefully get you your membership um, savings, like basically on your first order. So um, that's just qualitative on the quantitative lens, you know, we're serving across the, like uh, from start to finish. Um, so uh, on people who don't sign up, you know, we believe that if we offer products that um, uh, that they've requested and um, that we will be able to um, improve our conversion rates and our ability to kind of acquire new, new, new customers. Um, members um, and that's proven to be true with things like the weight set or you know our glassware which are things that people requested very commonly um, and once we introduced they became members um, and then on the flip side it's more um, um, in optimization around retention so you know for people who request like certain products or variants of products this is typically for members who um, you know uh, saw something but they want something slightly different maybe in a different color or material um, typically for those products that we introduce you know we believe that we'll be able to improve our retention and overall customer satisfaction when it comes to um, the existing member base so really i think it's it, at its core like that's kind of how we think <laughs> it's a very uh like objective um not uh artistic kind of lens when when we when it comes to uh to the, to the merchandise and then on the flip side on the flywheel it's really like we believe the more customers we can attract the more manufacturers we can close the more manufacturers we can close the more customer the more products we can offer to you know uh to, to new customers i live here in utah and i can say confidently that you know most people who are here who are into fitness and outdoor products like probably you know, a cashmere sweater doesn't appeal to them at all. But if we introduce, let's say, a hard shell jacket or ski goggles, like then in that case, maybe Italic becomes increasingly, you know, attractive. Um, and maybe there is a threshold after which they see so many products that, hey, let's actually sign up for Italic. We're going to make our money back. Whereas, you know, if they said that a year ago when we only had, you know, apparel or accessory that didn't appeal to them, um, uh, that I think like that, um, they probably would never have signed up. So um, I think it's also thinking about it in the lens of building that flywheel. And this kind of leads into the second you know, point that, that you brought up, which is, you know, um, uh, how do we think about like this going forward and, and scaling and, and um, you know, historically the way I framed it is like, we started as, as a luxury goods company selling predominantly cashmere scarves, soft goods, handbags. Um, we've gone downstream and that's, uh, we've gone downstream to quality goods in, uh, in general. So that includes things like bedding, cookware, things that you historically would not associate a cashmere manufacturer, like a cashmere brand to sell, right? Like, um, but I think that the goal is to actually become mass market. So how do we maintain the quality bar um, uh, of, of product that we're, we're, we're selling, but still go downstream 
um, into a, a place where an average American will actually find this really appealing. Um, not because they're buying like cashmere sweaters every day, but because they can buy like their actual lifestyle essentials um, on a high frequency basis, you know, to which Italic becomes akin to like a Costco, right? Or, or a prime where, you know, it's almost like a necessity to, 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 to live or, or to continue your, your status quo. Um, I think that the way we think about it, um, both in terms of merchandise as well as um, logistics is on the merchandise side, it's just like continuing to go downstream, um, but still maintaining that um, kind of perception of quality um, and value. Um, and then on the flip side for, um, for, uh, for, for logistics, um, the larger our supply chain gets, the more um, efficiency we're actually able, able to gain from it. So um, the larger our um, kind of manufacturer bases, the more complexity there is, um, the more, um, uh, uh, I guess, actually it's, it's more like the more complex, the more we invest into our supply chain, the more complexity it's able to tolerate to which the point where, you know, eventually the goal is to one day sell perishables or to sell, you know, products that are, you know, very complex to ship like, like furniture. Um, the model, like we've found, you know, manufacturers, regardless of the category have reached out, you know, ranging from frozen fish all the way to kind of um, to, to like large scale furniture manufacturers. And those are my two favorite examples because they're things that you couldn't normally ship. Um, but I think as we develop our supply chain competency and technology, you know, we'll be able to get there one day. So um, really it's on merchandising, it's going downstream and supply chain, it's improving our tolerance to complexity. I, I really like the way you frame not only the flywheel, but you, you got to kind of the Costco and the prime analogy. That's one of the most powerful elements of the business to me, right? Is this is this kind of point of sale capture? And, and I'll give an example of what I mean by that. You know, right now, my wife and I were moving into a new house and we're using Motsie, right? The software platform that basically helps you design out your home, right? Which furniture to buy, where it should be placed, so on and so forth. And if you think of kind of the prototypical you know, way we would have bought furniture before, you know, without that kind of, uh, you know, without that use case or platform, we would have visited, you know, 10, 20 different brands. We would have gone through kind of online catalogs and, and kind of bought and, you know, bought different stuff. Um, but our consumption pattern has completely changed, right? So instead of going to an individual retailer site, we basically got a mock-up design, you know, all the rooms in our house. These designs have furniture. They're all from different stores, different areas. Um, and candidly, like we're buying things we probably wouldn't have bought if it was just, you know, hey, can you get there on, you know, the seventh tab for this individual retailer? It's completely changed our purchasing pattern. And, and I see that same viability and potential with Italic, right? Which is, you know, kind of this sense of, you know, I might have originally come to Italic for a cashmere sweater, right? But insofar as you're consistently launching products that fit in a certain type of lifestyle for a certain type of demographic, right? At the right price point, right quality, so on and so forth the mindset behavior starts to change from, hey, let me go to Italic to buy, you know, a luxury piece of clothing at a better price to, hey, I need, you know, something, anything that basically fits in the contours of my lifestyle. I'm going to go check out Italic. So talk a little bit more, unpack that concept a little bit more if, if you agree with that, you know, number one. And number two, you know, if so, how do you think about, you know, that kind of point of sale uh, capture? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um... I think that that that's pretty much the entirety of the the business model for us. You know, if if someone comes to us and and buys one thing one time, uh, we're never gonna you know we're actually gonna lose money on that person, right? Because and and frankly, that's how most uh, direct to consumer brands, um, maybe between like twenty fourteen and twenty eighteen, like assumed was we're starting with XYZ, but hey, if we introduce like these adjacent categories that we'll be able to cross sell to them or upsell to our existing customers. 
and uh, and hopefully increase our LTV, our, our lifetime value, and hopefully like you know this is not a one-time transaction. Nine times out of ten, I don't think that's ever panned out. Um, I, I think it's like an extreme. It's, it's you have to do that from day one, or at least like build that kind of uh, understanding um, uh, into the customer behavior, like from day one, um, or at least as as quickly as you can, so that they don't pigeonhole you to assuming you're like just an XYZ kind of uh, uh, company. So I, I think for for us, like I, I totally agree. That's kind of the the entire. Um, value proposition of, of the company. We're not here to kind of build a flash in the pan brand that'll be hot for five years and then fizzle out. Um, I think we want to build something that's like decidedly unsexy and like very value driven where um, where the more, you know, the more you, uh, uh, the, ironic, it's almost ironic, like the more you spend with us, the more we believe you will spend in the future um, uh, uh, and also the more loyal you become. Um, it's almost like thinking about those cohort retention charts where you know it really levels off after like years one, two, like each subsequent year, the more likely you are to, to renew and become a loyal, you know, basically like it, it you know, it, it plateaus. Um, I think that's what we're really trying to build here is, you know, um, a destination site where you know, if you uh, if you want um, uh, if you want to purchase something, I mean, today Italic is like very limited. But um, if you want to purchase something that Italic currently offers, great, you'll buy it. Um, if you have a great experience with that, you'll probably come back and buy more into the entire kind of assortment that we have. But if you come back and say, "Hey, Italic doesn't have this yet," uh, we want to productize the experience so that you can actually request that. Tell us what you like about those products, um, what features you like, and then hopefully for our category managers and manufacturers, that's data that can actually go into the model of, of actually producing those products, um, kind of going back to the merchandising strategy we, we just talked about. So um, really the, the goal is to build Italic into a, a destination site akin to like an Amazon or a eBay or like, you know, a place where you actually go to browse passively um, just to see, <clears throat> excuse me, what they have, not just, um, not just like nice to haves. Um, so that you're coming back for kind of every day, or at least like you're coming, it's almost like you're, you're coming back, not just a shop. Um, so that's, that's definitely kind of, uh, in terms of the, I guess the point of sale capture specifically, like, you know, the, the opportunities there are, uh, kind of understanding more about like the categories that you want, you know, um, uh, identifying kind of adjacencies between, um, uh, products that you've purchased or other customers have purchased historically and like recommending products that, you know, those people have also purchased afterwards and increasing your, your frequ uh, frequency of use. Um, uh, and, and actually on the, on the sales side, like, you know, the goal is not to um, uh, really use product sales to monetize very aggressively. I think like Costco has like a 12 or 13% margin and like Aldi's has the same thing. Like there's a, you know, there's a number of references for this specifically, but I think for us, like that's um, kind of the, the long tails, like, you know, we want to build something um, just as much loved and, and useful as a Costco, um, not as an independent brand. Jeremy, when you were talking earlier, you were mentioning, you know, you were kind of alluding to how difficult of a business this is to execute against. I want you to unpack that a little bit more, you know, when, and when you think about challenges for the business, what comes to mind? So there's, there's obviously the canonical bucket, you know, startup challenges, but then there's business model and company specific types. Talk to me a little bit more about how, you know, when you said earlier, this business is really tough to execute. Talk a little bit more about that. And what are some of the non-obvious challenges you know, you face that again, kind of folks that are listening in or from outside in, you know, might not grapple with or appreciate. Yeah, you know, if I, if I had known how, 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 how much work this would be, I don't know if I would have started. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I think, look, when, 
when it comes to software, it's it's very it's it's quite straightforward, right? It's like you, you build product and you you have salespeople who sell it, or, or you have like a you know self serve. You know, I, I think it's like the playbook is there, and of course the playbook is is here for for anyone who's selling physical product. But the second you touch anything in the physical real world, things in, like drastically in, in increase in complexity. And I think you've seen this with other marketplace businesses such as Uber and Airbnb and DoorDash more recently. I think where you know you have to deal with like so many edge cases that happen in the real world that in software it might be a bug that you can you know patch in a day, right? So I think for for Italic, um, you know, I actually think um, uh, when you deal with production of physical goods, um, the the there is a significant um, time challenge that that happens that most I think people who are, are in tech or, or purely software like aren't aware of, which is um, if you have a challenge, if you have a problem with the product, first of all, you have thousands of that unit. So how, what do you do with that? Secondly, you, you have to course correct, but that course correction can take months, sometimes like six months to, to fix. Um, and then thirdly, I think like you also have to work through logistics, right? So if you have that challenge, like how do you, um, uh, how do you like, uh, what do you do with returns? What do you do with fulfillments? Like, do you build a fulfillment kind of process in-house? Do you like outsource it? If you outsource it, can you build integrations around that so that, you know, it's productized uh, or is it purely a service oriented business where, you know, a lot of that stuff is, um, is, is done manually by a support team. Um, uh, all of which I think lends itself to like going back to the point of like, if you deal with physical products, there's a lot of like anomalies or things that like, you know, you don't normally think about that just inevitably happen every single time you launch a product or, or kind of sell, you know, ship anything. Um, even more recently when it comes to like shipping, right? If you guarantee, this is not, by the way, this is not like specific to Italic. This is anyone who deals with a physical product. Like if you, um, uh, if you, if you say historically, like historically, you know, you get most of your sales from December 12th to the 14th for like your I don't know, post holiday kind of last uh, uh, purchase of the year type of uh, last gift opportunity. Um, but then USPS nowadays like is calling for, you know, five days um, early. Like what do you do in those cases? So I think like, the, you know, when you deal with physical products, there's just like a number of things that, that become complex. Um, I would think for Italic, like it becomes even more complex when you deal with manufacturers because these are people who have historically like not used uh, software in any capacity besides like production planning um, or email. So I think to train them on using like a software first type of product um, to uh, to think about product planning, replenishment, you know, so on and so forth is, is a challenge in itself. So, you know, I, I'll be honest and say like none of these things I think are, are uh, specific to Italic. I think it's just that every single point of the um, supply chain from start in terms of sourcing all the way to shipping a product to a customer or processing return has to be um, working perfectly um, and has to be constantly improving. If it's, if one single part of that doesn't work, like the entire supply chain, it's like, you know, the weakest link analogy where, you know, if the return experience is bad, the overall customer experience is bad. If a product has a challenge or if a manufacturer says no, you know, you can't produce it in general. So I think um, that's probably the, the main thing is just like architecting all of it, you know, perfectly across like thousands of products is really, really challenging. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it's, I, I think the upside is also there in which like it's worth it. So um, yeah. Jeremy, as we round out the conversation, uh, I want to ask you a question I've, I've enjoyed asking a lot of the other founders and guests on our show, which is you know, what, what's one thing you believe about your business or your industry at large um, that others wouldn't agree with you on? You know, I, I think it's probably um, 
I think the, I think for people who who know um, this the ecosystem um, will probably agree with me on this, but I, I don't think Amazon is the end state of commerce in in in, in the West. Um, uh, you know, in, in in fact, to be honest, like Amazon has not like has does not have the strongest penetration in Europe, like as a, as a kind of like as a counterpoint, but specifically in the US, like I think there's a lot of things that have happened um, in Asia that we can look to as a parallel for what might actually happen here. Um, I think Amazon is, is, is um, a phenomenally well run company, especially having the ability to kind of leverage, you know, AWS's profits as a collateral against like subsidizing the retail business. Um, but I do think there's a lot more opportunity in, in, in retail than I think what most kind of investors or founders will give um, credit to. Um, and I think there's a lot more um, innovation that can happen on the um, the consumer shopping experience beyond just the supply chain that um, that I think people um, are, are, haven't like woken up to quite yet. Um, you know, I think companies like Pop Shop, which um, which does like live streaming, or um, you know, Italic, which which does like C two M kind of uh, 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 marketplace shopping. I think there's a lot of opportunities that um, still exist in the in the ecosystem. It's just knowing where to look. So um, that's probably the main thing I would say is like we're far from I think um, you know the, the end state of of ecom. Well, Jeremy, this has been awesome. This has been a, a ton of fun to have you on today. I, I learned a lot, certainly. And, and again, as I mentioned kind of before our conversation too, Italic is, is really, really exciting. I really love what you're, what you're building. So thanks so much for taking the time and, and sharing some insights with us today. Thanks so much for inviting me. It was so, uh, so, so great to be here.